Welcome to Keeping in Sight, a podcast dedicated to narrowing the gap on healthcare disparities. Health inequities are well documented within the United States, and the role of social determinants is increasingly recognized as an important factor driving these differences. Could digital technologies improve health inequities by making information and expertise more scalable and widely available? Or will they perpetuate or even worsen these widespread differences? Sanofi MSL co-hosts Delilah Masick and Michael McMillan have a discussion with Dr. Kamala Tamarisan on how to overcome disparities associated with technology in the atrial fibrillation space. I'm pleased to introduce Dr. Kamala Tamarisa. She is a clinical cardiac electrophysiologist with Texas Cardiac Arrhythmia and chair of the Heart Rhythm Society DEI Council. Dr. Tamarisa has contributed many commentaries on how to tackle sex and racial ethnic disparities in the field of EP and has led community programs to understand and help close these disparity gaps. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Michael and Delilah. This is a very relevant topic for the times we live in. As you all know, there is supporting data highlighting the gaps in EP healthcare delivery, and we are hoping to touch on some solutions as we go through this dialogue. I mean, your leadership in cardiovascular healthcare disparity research and education is very impressive. You also have a keen interest in closing the healthcare delivery gap by effectively integrating technology. Dr. Tamarisa, can you share with the listeners how your passion for health equity led you to where you are today? Great question. And I'll start off with this. I am a woman of color, so I do face implicit biases and have faced explicit biases. And I'll start with a story. Uh, One of my Black patients refused uh, to undergo ICD placement. And she was labeled by the physician as non-compliant. It's all over the chart. Once that's placed, the care is completely closed off. She came to me for a second opinion. When I dig into the story, she was very concerned about two things. One was childcare at home and then the recovery after the procedure. Second thing was she was not explained that this is not an open heart surgery, that she'll recover quickly and will get back to her routine. And she also told me that the physician who saw her stood at the door, literally did not make eye contact. And he started with what she thought was a perception or an assumption on his part, which did not help her connect with him or have a trust in his care. Instead of labeling a patient as non-compliant as clinicians, we need to go into the logical question as to why is this patient not compliant? And as you know, biases come in many forms, either downplaying patient's symptoms or assumptions, labeling them as non-compliant, not diving into their social factors and barriers. And being the physician that I am, I would like to see every patient receive the same care across the board, doesn't matter where they come from, what language they speak, and where we are from. Thanks for being transparent with that story. And also, we appreciate you sharing the origins of where your passions come from. Let's begin our discussion by talking about mobile health or mHealth technologies in the AFib space. There are several existing and emerging technologies, such as smartwatches, patches, and handhelds that have been used to successfully detect AFib in a variety of clinical and community settings. Dr. Tamarisa, 
Are you seeing AFib patients present to your clinic with data from wearable devices? Yes, absolutely, Michael. I mean, I see patients who wear the wearables and I do see patients who don't even know what a wearable is. Again, going back to the divide, who can afford these is the question, right? We talk about food poverty, lack of shelter, lack of safety, inability to afford for the basic needs is a barrier for patients to wear or even access the wearable technology. So when you collect data from the wearable technology, you already start with the bias. Who can wear them? And when we start collecting data in AFib management based upon the wearable technology, we implicitly exclude those patients who cannot afford. And we draw references and draw data from the wearable technology and we try to generalize them. Are we already starting with a bias? Are you, you know, unintentionally excluding those patients who can't afford? And mind you, these are the patients who have very high risk factors for APIP. You provided a great example of this digital divide that we're seeing. Certain populations like underrepresented racial and ethnic groups, those with low income and education levels, rural residents, and older adults have less access to advanced mobile technology. Within atrial fibrillation, we know that the clinical significance of device-detected AFib may still be unclear, but we continue to see disparities among different patient populations. On our last episode, Dr. Keith C. Ferdinand discussed this AFib double paradox in African-American patients. I wanted to share a recent cross-sectional analysis from the MESA study that confirmed those findings. So the prevalence of clinically detected AFib was substantially lower in African-American than in white participants. But unbiased AFib detection by ambulatory monitoring in those same individuals revealed little difference in the proportion of AFib by race or ethnicity. So Dr. Tamrisa, what do you make of those results? I think the way you put it out there, Delilah, you already had a solution in that comment, right? The double paradox of AFib is very intriguing, and a lot of research needs to be done before we say that African-American patients and even Hispanic patients have lower incidence of AFib. Let's take a step back and say how many of the patients from the underrepresented racial ethnic groups are enrolled in the trial. Second thing is, let us say the truth is that the African-Americans, for example, have lower risk of AFib you need to look at the overall impact. Just because they have a lower incidence of AFib or prevalence of AFib does not mean their risk of stroke is lower. Actually, their uh, risk of uh, stroke is very high. They tend to be very symptomatic. You know, the impact of the disease is very high. And the third one is, I think as AFib clinicians, we need to do a better job with enrolling patients with more diversified populations and build through the, how do we get there? But we need to be more intentional about enrolling patients and develop collaborative AFib programs. We as physicians and healthcare systems need to be very proactive instead of being reactive to the care of AFib. What do I mean by that? Let's focus on risk factor reduction with collaborative AFib programs by treating the comorbidities including dietitians, exercise programs for weight loss, and even engaging community leaders through the local church or libraries or where the patients frequent 
and using patient care navigators to tie the healthcare system to the community. Personal example, I led these programs where we would go to the local inner city gyms, even churches, go to the gym and make time where you exercise. And then along the same time, give some important facts about AFib and what are the risk factors, bringing it down to the patient's level. Patients don't know what AFib is, what's this burden of AFib and what it means to them. And it's our job to educate. For example, they need to know that hypertension is present in 60 to 80% of individuals with AFib. Black patients are 40% more likely to have high blood pressure and 60% more likely to have diabetes. Do patients know these? No, they don't. So it's our job to educate them. You know, let me uh, propose a solution here. Each healthcare system, what if they adopted zip codes and said, we will start community initiatives in the zip codes that we cater to? On a broader note, they can be engaged in transportation, the arrangements for the patients who cannot travel, or even help with insurance coverage and other platforms. You know, you bring up a great idea about healthcare systems adopting zip codes. That's something I think we can definitely put into action across the healthcare system. I want to dive a bit deeper into this phenomenon. You recently published an article titled Racial and Ethnic Differences in the Management of Atrial Fibrillation in the Canadian Journal of Cardiology. By the way, it's a great read. In the article, you shared data that raised the possibility of an ascertainment bias in AFib detection by race, owing to challenges in assessing healthcare. Can you explain this bias a little bit for the listeners? Absolutely. The ascertainment bias is a form of a systemic error that occurs during data collection and analysis. And it occurs when the sample units are drawn in such a way that they don't represent the greater population. So it doesn't serve the purpose of who you're trying to help, you know, including the diverse population. In a clinical trial, the ascertainment bias starts off where the selection of the patients in a certain clinical trial, let's say 80% are white men, and then you generalize the results and take it to African-American women. That generalization of the results will in turn create a gap. We said, oh, AFib is not very high in Black patients, but starting with the bias at the data collection. And could someone take that and say, well, I'm seeing a Black patient. They don't have that high incidence of AFib, which is not true. That is ascertainment bias in simplistic form you know, generalization of results, and it basically threatens the external validity of the findings. The two sources, like I said, for the ascertainment bias are the data collection and lack of blinding, as in the MESA cohort. And I'll use another example. PVI, the pulmonary vein isolation procedure, is found to be more effective than pharmacological rhythm control in terms of short-term symptom alleviation. But then is it allowing the ascertainment bias because of unblinded evaluation? So there's a lot more in the research that needs to be done in the background before we generalize the results to the greater population. That's a great explanation. Now that our listeners know what ascertainment bias is, what can providers do to offset this? So a few things. As a person who is starting the trial or NIH or any of the research institutes, first thing is to undo the biases on a personal level as researchers. Second thing is be very inclusive, purposeful inclusion of diverse population. So making sure even before the protocol goes out, 20%, 30% women, African-Americans, Hispanic, 
So the population enrollment in these trials needs to be diverse. Otherwise, the results will be biased. And then how about the person who's receiving the intervention, for example, the wearable technology or a medication? They need to be blinded because, you know, if they're not blinded, the placebo effect in whatever form will affect the results again. And then the last leg of the analysis is the investigator who's analyzing or the statistician, they need to be blinded too. And I simplified this, but these are the layers that can be overcome to undo the ascertainment bias, which in turn affects our equitable healthcare delivery. I'm so glad you brought up diversity and inclusion in clinical trials. I mean, when looking at the demographics of two large AFib wearable studies, the Apple Heart study enrolled 68% white patients and the Fitbit Heart study enrolled 73% white patients. We know that if the algorithms for the detection of AFib are not trained or evaluated for a representative group, then there may be a lack of algorithmic accuracy and evidence for minority populations. So Dr. Tamarisa, how can we ensure diversity and inclusion in AFib clinical trials really related to technology? Let's start with trust in healthcare research. You know, it goes back deep into the history. Cultural concordance, our clinician and researcher and the patient's race, you know, if we have concordance, so that brings back to the point that diversify the workforce. If a Black researcher goes to a Black patient and says, there is a research trial, would you be interested? There is a higher likelihood that they would say yes. But if someone else goes and stands at the door and says, there is a research trial that's going to go on, would you be interested? There is lack of trust. Will their privacy be invaded? There are many questions patients have, so we need to take time to answer those. Am I saying that the clinicians have all the time? No, they don't. But how about investing in clinical research navigators and bringing collaborative team? Number two is meeting the patients where they reside. So some trials, we request them to come to the office, let's say every six months, and the patients are unable to come either due to lack of transportation or they don't have childcare. So how about we set up something within the community in a public library or childcare areas for women or use the digital tool? to enroll these patients. For them to use the digital tools, let's set some time aside, maybe use nurse practitioners, a physician assistant colleagues of ours, and say, let us start talking to them, preparing him for what the details of the research are. Then the clinician goes in and says, okay, this is a trial. It might have a higher likelihood of enrolling these patients. I'll touch on the last one too. As the companies that manufacture mHealth technology If they start with community programs, accessing again, team up with the healthcare systems, adopting the zip codes and saying, you know, for this patient population, we'll give out X amount of wearables for free. And uh, this is more for the research trial would be one of those things that we can do if we all have a buy-in into closing the digital divide. We absolutely have to build trust with our patients in order to make this change. You know, at a time when a telemedicine visit can be as simple as a telephone call or a video chat, the conversation has to expand beyond just access to technology and the internet. The digital divide highlights the challenges in providing the support patients need to maximize use of the technology that they already have. What are some of your thoughts on how the cardiovascular healthcare community can bridge this digital divide? 
Great. So we bring it down to the practical level, Michael, with that question. Sending text with step-by-step instructions to a patient before we come on to use the telemedicine or televisit, or even recording a mobile-friendly video, or even using YouTube just as a platform to you know, prepare the patients for this televisit. And it helps the communication become more effective. Second thing is to even understand the cultural differences as to how some cultures use the digital technology for healthcare. For example, WhatsApp. Recently, a patient was uh, using WhatsApp to message me, and she is from Argentina. That's the platform that she's very comfortable with. And we did, you know, using the live video through WhatsApp to access care for her. And then uh, the other thing is, I always feel like I think pictures speak more than just the words. So what if we created a very nice, like, just like Audio Smart does with ACC, using pictures and, you know, how to access the steps in picture format. There's no language barrier to pictures. So, you know, that will help us overcome that. And then using inbuilt translator systems for the telehealth will overcome the language barrier. The last thing I'll touch on is the broadband coverage. You know, we talk about affordability again. I go back to it. The North Carolina has the Division of Broadband and Digital Equity. They're working towards pretty much throughout the state to close the digital divide. And in here, we'll have to bring in broadband carriers like Verizon or any of these companies. Why not come in and join hands to subsidize for these patients so they can access it and overcome the affordability as a barrier? Now, we can't talk about adapting to new technology in the healthcare space without first discussing health and digital literacy. Digital literacy is especially important in healthcare because if the information providers give to patients isn't in the patient's preferred language or patients don't have the tools necessary to access that information, then it won't be helpful at all. And as a side note, for patients who do have access to digital apps, many apps demand high readability levels. This is about a 12th grade level. In your opinion, Dr. Tamarisa, what are some ways that providers can help patients improve their digital literacy? Patients can help themselves. You know, some ideas we can suggest to patients would be, as you know, there's a generational gap in digital access. Grandkids or the kids, they are more adept with this technology than elderly patients. So I usually tell my older patients, you know, ask your grandson or granddaughter to help you. And they will get this app on your phone for remote follow-ups or remote download on your device. And lo and behold, these younger generation, they get it. They help the grandparents. So that's one solution. Second thing is the public library is accessible. It's uh, free for a lot of people. So even going to the public library and asking someone there, can you please help me? I need to download. And maybe as clinicians, we can even go volunteer there to educate them. And then the other place for women, the salons, these places, there are a lot of uh, diverse age groups, diverse population. Why not in on a Sunday, just go there Saturday, go and say, hey, you know, there are apps that are coming out. These are the wearables that are coming out. And this is how you use. So just teaching them, not only like you said, Delilah, health factors, key points in health and risk factors, and also what's happening in the digital world. It's paramount that we find the common ground to meet patients, and the community involvement is a great step to reach a larger base. With increased accessibility to medical information online, 
Modern medicine needs to adapt to the increase in curiosity and need for clarity from patients seeking better understanding of their health and complications. mHealth technology can also aid in education about a patient's disease state, monitoring of symptoms, and tracking of medication adherence. Dr. Tamarisa, are there any digital resources that you recommend to provide to your patients for AFib management? There's a very well-developed patient-driven by a dear friend, Melanie Truhills. Her website is stopafib.org. It's a patient-driven, and actually that organization hosts educational symposia in Dallas, in Texas, where I am. So patients can go to those and they can access videos. And this is all focused on AFib care. What's the latest technology? What are the risk factors? And another resource on there is that website also helps uh, connect the patients with the local electrophysiologists and cardiologists who specialize in AFib management. And then the medication adherence app is My Med Schedule Plus, and that can be accessed too. Every patient deserves an equal opportunity to benefit from health technology. Now, we've covered a lot of information during this episode. Dr. Tamarisa, if you had to choose the two most important points you want the listeners to take away from our conversation, what would they be? I say be an instrument of change as a clinician. I start with myself because unless I take extra time with some patients, I will not be able to change it. I don't think the change is solely dependent on an external entity. Once I start changing or moving the needle, Hopefully, I inspire others to move the needle as well. And second, my pet peeve is please don't call patients non-compliant. It bothers me deeply. Medicine and clinicians are very logical, analytical field combined with compassion. And when we call patients non-compliant, we're almost blaming them for their own disease on top of the burden of the disease, right? They're already suffering and we label them as non-compliant. We disconnect them from equitable health care. So instead of labeling them non-adherent, dig into the why. And that's very important. Is it lack of transportation? Is it lack of trust? Loss of recent job? COVID has unmasked unemployment and economic stressors. And so let's dig in more before we, as human beings, as clinicians, you know, label patients, which really doesn't help the equitable care we all want to deliver to our patients. Excellent points. We've had such a great discussion today about ways to overcome disparities associated with technology. Your commitment to solving healthcare inequities really speaks for itself. Do you have any passions or interests outside of the professional arena that you'd like to share with the listeners? So I am a mother, and that's important for our listeners to know. Electrophysiologist, a woman of color can be a mother and a clinician. And volunteering, again, I'll tie that as a personal interest to my professional interest. I work in um, safe houses, abused women and children's shelters, and I have taken my kids since they were young to these. We go serve because unless you have a firsthand experience to see where these people live, what are their difficulties? If I stand outside the wall, I can't help them. I do have a lot of you know networking through that. I work with pro bono lawyers, and it's a great uh, collaborative effort um, for fun. I do oil on canvas. I paint nature. I do write a lot of poetry and always been a swimmer. So I love to swim <laughs> where I tune out the noise and focus on uh, just the water. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing so that the listeners can get to know you a little bit better. 
We really appreciate the valuable insights you provided today and enjoy discussing healthcare disparities and, you know, potential solutions in the cardiovascular space related to technology. Listeners, be sure to click on the episode description for links to references and resources to support your efforts in tackling health disparities. Thank you for tuning in and stay tuned for our next episode on cardiovascular healthcare disparities impacting women with Dr. Annabel Goldman. Mm-hmm.